to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Git.ClickGuard, who for the last 17 plus years has been a speaker, trainer, agile coach, and is currently the owner of Native Wired based in Denmark. Get a ClickGuard. Welcome to Maintainable. Thank you very much for having me. So first off, given your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few key indicators that a team is successfully maintaining their software? Well, one thing is that they actually spend time maintaining it. One of the things I see very often is that it's not even on any kind of planning or board or whatever. They don't discuss it. So that's kind of a sign that it's not existing. So if people talk about it and like go, oh, we need to make sure we have Slack enough for this, or even better, actually set aside time to make sure that they do it. That's some of the signs that I see. And then also they don't curse as much when their stuff breaks down because they can actually easily uh, go in and find a bug. It's never easy to find a bug, but it's easier if your software is maintainable. Sure. You said like having enough Slack and are you saying in terms of having like a percentage of your developer time focused on going back and providing some maintenance type tasks or? I, I think it depends on how you develop. If you have healthy software development where you actually maintain as you go along, I wouldn't say set aside time for it. I would always set aside Slack time no matter what, because stuff happens that we don't think about. If you know that you are not good at taking the time to do maintainability as you go along, then I would actually set aside some time slots to go in and do whatever you need. If it is refactoring or some code reviews or whatever you need, sometimes you may even need to do a redesign to have the code be more maintainable. What is your take on the metaphor of technical debt? I kind of like it because I think that's what I like about it is that it has interest, like all debts have. So the more technical debt you have, and the longer time you have it, the bigger it will become. And I think that it is something that we have been very good at building because we focus so much on creating new stuff. Also, part of it is based in our education system. I mean, I'm a computer scientist, and we learn nothing about maintainability mm-hmm. except for the word. We learned a tiny bit about testing, but mostly we learned about how do you design software? How do you produce software? And I think that because of that, we have a lot of technical depth because we take the easy way out, which is good if you then take the time to actually make software that is readable, for instance, which I think is a big part of maintainability is having it readable, having a good structure so that's easy to actually access. And of course, having it testable. And when you say testable, are you referring to automated testing or just having a thorough testing process or just a testing process in general? Yes. I think as much as possible of the tedious work should be automated. If we repeat something over and over again, we need automation. But that is not enough because we are creating new stuff all the time, which means we need to test it all the time. Preferably, I like when people, if they do have automatic tests, that they actually write them before they before they start, I'm not sure I told you with everything in TDD, but that part is, I think is essential. And I must admit the first time I did it, I thought it was stupid until I had a test without code that was green. And then I'm like, oh, that's why you run your test first. So I think you do need a test process. And sometimes you don't have the time to make good automatic testing, but you need to know as soon as you create just a little bit, that investment will probably be worth the effort. Yeah, so I think it's necessary 
to have automatic testing, but I do know a lot of people don't get around to it. It's an interesting uh, challenge, I think, for different developers and teams, I think, to prioritize that. I always wonder if it's more of an issue that they just don't have enough experience doing it yet. And so it's not part of their regular routine when they're writing, because it's always easy enough to ask a developer when they say something's finished to say, well, how do you know it works? Well, I tested it. Like, Can you reproduce that test? No, I come manually clicked around and did whatever the process is. But there's usually testing involved one way or another. It's just, can you automate some of that work for yourselves? But I, I do think a lot of that tends to be maybe the lack of experience there or even knowing how best to approach that. For example, I was recently working with one of our clients and they have their own engineering team and they haven't been doing testing because their team disagrees on how to test. Like what's the ideal way to test? And so that kind of paralyzes them from actually doing any testing. And it's like, that's even worse. I mean, bad testing is even worse than no testing. I do think um, a lot of our teams, and especially because we almost only work in teams nowadays, is to have a tester not to do all the tests, but to bring in that mindset of kind of like, how will I verify that this is actually working? And a good tester also has the instinct of finding out where the weak spots are. I know a lot of people say, oh, testers break code. Actually, they don't. They just figure out where the problems are. And I think that quality mindset is still, because it's not built into our industry, I think we need people with a testing mindset in there. I also see teams who do this make the mistake of thinking that person will be doing all the tests. Actually, in the best team I was in as a tester, I didn't do any of the tests because I was the bottleneck. But I would help people do the verification and figure out how do we, how do we look at this? Because when you produce something, you think of it as, oh, how can I create this? Whereas when you look at it from a quality perspective, you'll go like, how can I verify this? And having those two different perspectives in the same team creates better products. That's so true. What do you believe engineering teams often get wrong when they're discussing technical debt as a team? I think what they do get wrong is they see it as something very separate from producing. And I think that part of it is actually the producing. And I think that even if we make things totally right now, in six months, we will have become smarter, which means that we will need to clean up. So I think that a lot of people see technical debt as something we do because the product owner, the client, whoever tells us to make new features, but they forget that technical debt is also something we create ourselves. And that is something that we need to take care of all the time. It's a little bit like paying rent in an apartment. If you don't pay rent, you'll be kicked out. If you don't take care of your technical debt, your code will break. Are there patterns that you've seen work well for teams where they're able to prioritize that? You mentioned like having enough, like say Slack time, but from like a process point of view, do you find teams that are actually typically putting those maintenance type tasks into a backlog somewhere of some sort? Or do you see teams that actually do really well where they just account for that when they're working on new stuff or making updates to their code? They do a little bit of cleaning up in the, at the same time. The best approach I've seen is doing both. If you see something that is wrong, you clean it up when you're there unless it is big. And then if it's big, I think it's good to take that step back. And one of the big mistakes I also see is that people think that producing code is about sitting at a computer and typing. And I think that especially with, with higher levels of technical depth, taking that step back, standing at a whiteboard and discussing and figuring out how to, for instance, restructure things or clean up things. So I do find that, that the thing is, the best approach is actually to communicate to talk about the things, to discuss things, to do pairing or mobbing and, well, code reviews if you have to, but I do prefer pairing or mobbing um, because then you have an extra set of eyes and an extra mind looking at it. 
So actually, I find that communication is one of the best ways to reduce technical debt. So as an agile coach, what types of scenarios are you typically hired to come in and assist the team with? So in the beginning, I was mostly hired to come in and teach them Scrum or Kanban or any other method. But I kind of got tired of that because to me, they are just tools. So what I do mostly now is I go in and help with communication, with working together. And the later years, I've been working a lot on psychological safety. How do we create a working environment where people are not afraid to speak up, whether it is about you know, if they have a new idea or if they see a problem or also when they make a mistake, because we all make mistakes. And if anyone claims they don't, I usually say, why don't you remove the backspace on your computer? Because we all make mistakes and having an environment where it's safe to talk about these things and also bring who you are, because we're all different. We don't want a bunch of people who all think the same things and you need an environment where it's safe enough to be. So that's what I've been working a lot on the last few years. That's interesting. Are you, through that process, are you spending time more on the, with the individual people within the team? Or do you find yourself spending a lot more time with like the, whoever is kind of managing the team? Or it was a kind of a split between that? It's kind of a split. I think that if you truly want to have psychological safety in a department or in a company, you need to start at the top. I've never been able to do that but, uh, yet. As you said, I've not been able to do that yet. I, <laughs> I hope to. So what I have, have been doing is working with the management the level I can get to. And then also working with the teams because things like psychological safety is like this fluffy thing that we don't know very much about. So helping them figure out what does it actually mean to us? Like the last place I worked, one of the things we found out was that pull request was something that made people feel unsafe because they didn't like to give feedback because they were afraid to hurt the other person. And because of that, we then ended up creating a feedback workshop where, we, where I helped the teams learn. When I say we, it's because I worked with another agile coach, where we helped the, the teams learn how to give and receive feedback because that was something that made them feel unsafe. And since safety is so individual from context to context and from person to person, I do do a lot of individual coaching as well. You know, you're touching on like that example of like dealing with pull requests. My own team was dealing with that recently where earlier this year, we kind of formalized our process for submitting pull requests. And we didn't really spend a lot of time thinking about what the process would be for how to respond to a pull request. How do you provide feedback? And like, it's kind of come in different, in different flavors by different people. And there was a point recently where there was two developers that, that kind of disagreed about it, something in their pull request, And we're trying to figure out, well, how do we help them start this process out together? And then also people have been have admitted that like, well, I'm kind of nervous about we have a junior developer and I don't want to be too critical of them or I, they might feel you know hurt or they're not getting to where they need to be yet. And like, I don't want to like feel like I'm nitpicking their stuff, but how do we do this in a way that doesn't seem super emotional? They're worried about someone having an emotional response to that pull request feedback. For my own selfish benefit, what are some tips that you offered a team like that that were trying to figure out how to not worry about it? So I think that, first of all, you need to agree on a process. And so I think that's step one. The other part of it that you need to know that you need to always go for the code or the process or whatever. You need to go for the thing and not the person. So it's never you created bad code. It's more like, okay, in this line, I think that this function does not do what it's supposed to do. I'm afraid it's calling the wrong variable or whatever. Never go for the person, which we tend to do because it becomes easier. Try to be as objective as possible. And then try to maybe also sometimes limit the feedback. 
Because if we get too much feedback at once, we can't relate to it. And then also practice receiving feedback because every time you have a feedback training, it's mostly about how do you give feedback. But whenever you receive feedback, remember that, first of all, it is true for the other person. And that other person took the time to give you this feedback, so say thank you. You don't necessarily have to react to the feedback. In a pull request, of course, you can have rules for that. But feedback is something that is the other person's perception of you. And then also be prepared that an emotional reaction might come. And that is okay because humans have emotions. And if you really tried your best and then the senior developer comes and tells you something, that might be emotional. So be prepared for that and saying, I know that it can be hard to start out. So let me help you figure out how we can improve this. And then, you know, use that knowledge and use those questions. And also when you're receiving feedback from a junior developer, those are the best questions because they ask the questions that we forgot about because we've been doing this for a while. So always say thank you and then think about it. And it's okay to say, I need a moment to think about this. Can we continue tomorrow? Both when you give and receive feedback. I think those are some good suggestions there. When you're working with these teams, I've seen that you talk a lot about helping people develop, say, their soft skills. Why, why do you feel like that's such an important thing in this industry? Well, I think it's important in all industries, but especially in this industry, because we have the disadvantage when it comes to soft skills is that we never learned about them. When we go, no matter what we do, I mean, most people I meet in this industry are technical and technical of education, computer science, engineering, stuff like that, mathematics. And what we learn is to solve problems and get results. And mostly we learn there's a black and white, there's a right and a wrong. When it comes to soft skills, there's not always a right and a wrong. And people are messy. I mean, code is messy, but people are even messier. (laughs) We have a lot of background. We have different cultures. A lot of the companies I work with have multiple cultures, both when it comes to nationalities, but also how you work. And these are the hard skills because you can't just write a manual and go, if you just follow these four steps, you will do feedback just perfectly because it's all about sensing the other person, figuring out what's going on. And I found that if I can help people feel more confident, communicate better, listen to other people, the results get so much better because all of a sudden we can start talking about the technical things in a totally different way. Did you see yourself at one point in, the, in your earlier in your career, see yourself doing this type of work? Not at all. I mean, my dream was to work for Cisco as a network engineer. So I did my master thesis in routing protocols for mobile networks. Me and my partner had one of the first ones that actually worked. So that was like, this is what I expected to do. And then as I came out and there was a crisis, I started out as a technical tester. And then I realized, wait, if we can have a better process, we can actually build in quality instead of testing at the end. And then I slowly realized that processes is part of what helps us. And by working with processes, I started realizing that it's not so much about process. It's about value. It's about people. And I found that I have a skill for working with people. And then I also love working with geeks. I mean, I can't imagine working in another industry where people just go to work and speak about normal stuff. I mean, where else can you have discussions about if the empire has the best music or, you know, if the rebels do, which the empire does? They also have the best starships, but that's because they have money. (laughs) I don't know any other industry where you can have these discussions or you can joke about unicorns, for instance, and... 
I even did a talk with a unicorn horn and still be considered serious. That's pretty great. You know, when you're working with these teams, you know, you talked a lot about like going in and, you know, you mentioned like teach, you used to teach people Scrum and Kanban and things like that. Are you also coming in with some sort of framework nowadays with teams or do you kind of come in and custom tailor to how that organization address some things? I mean, I developed some frameworks. I developed together with my friend Morgan, I developed some trainings for psychological safety and feedback. I have a training on communication that uh, I started out also with another friend, Aki Salmi. So I have a lot of trainings and knowledge that I come in with. And retrospectives, I always, always, always work with their retrospectives. But I mostly customize it. And sometimes I will use parts of Scrum or Kanban or whatever I know. I'll just make some stuff up that will help them. I've also worked a little bit with stuff like Safe that has its good elements especially if you can get a big room planning to work. It just makes wonders. So sometimes I do work with the traditional stuff. I also recently worked with how do you actually get a vision to work? How do you implement it? Uh, I work with OKRs. But it's mostly customizing and then pulling from a huge toolbox, but also pulling in other people if I need to. One, one other thing related to you, you, you said psychological safety a few times now. My understanding of that without having been super familiar with those two words being put next to each other necessarily. I think I have like a, an idea, a gut instinct of what that might mean. But for those listening, what, what does that mean from like a day-to-day perspective? Is it just the safety of being able to share? I think you touched a little bit on like being able to propose new ideas and to bring up concerns as a team and not worry about the, the response from people. Yeah. So basically the way I usually put it is that you can say what you think without being punished for it. And punished can be anything from ridicule to being fired. I mean, we saw a crazy example this year with Boeing, where actually a lot of people tried to speak up in Boeing about the airplanes and the problems, but either got fired or just bullied out. And Boeing didn't react until two airplanes fell down. And that's like a huge example of what psychologically unsafe environment means. But even in the daily work, when you sit there, if you do pairing and someone would go, why on earth would anyone write that? Then you would go like that, even though that could be like a joke or something, you know, it might feel, you might feel unsafe. Maybe you won't try something new the next time. So we'll miss out on that idea. Maybe you'll make a mistake and you'll be afraid to speak up because you know, they'll make fun of you. So, so that unsafety, I know a lot of companies where the managers talk about we have a safe culture. You can tell me anything, but they never, ever talk about their own mistakes, which mm. means that you do create a culture where you don't talk about mistakes. And we can only learn from mistakes if we talk about them, whether we learn that we need to repeat what we did or we learn that we should never do it. Uh, I worked with a team who decided to do fuck up of the week every Monday because they got so tired of people talking about mistakes that became a big success like post-it notes that was supposed to be really strong glue and now it's a big success. So they decided to actually talk, what was the worst thing I did this week to make it easier for them? And I think that by creating these environments where we can talk about any concerns that we have, any new ideas that we have, and asking questions, not just as newbies, because it's more legitimate for newbies to, to ask questions. I often see people who've been there for a while not wanting to ask questions because they feel like, oh, I'm supposed to know everything. I am the senior. So creating an environment where that can happen and also where you can come in and be yourself, no matter what that means to you. 
We will be back with our interview with Gitta in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to take a quick moment to thank you for listening to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these discussions valuable, please consider sharing it amongst your peers on social media and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or any of those other weird places that people seem to be writing reviews on. Also, if you know someone in our industry that I should be speaking with on Maintainable, shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, back to our interview with Gitta Clickguard. I like that idea of like sharing fuck up of the week type of approach. Is that something you've seen teams do like where everybody on the team kind of shares one or is it just like if there was like a highlight of the week with, I mean, I get that could be different for every team. In this case, they decided to, to everyone do it. And another team decided to write things down to kind of actually figure out how many mistakes they made during a week to kind of see, okay, maybe there's an area here where we need to change our process. And I find that this works best if it comes from the team because they are, I will facilitate and help them figure out, you know, what are the areas where we either have problems or where we would like to experiment. But they need to be the ones who come up with the ideas because I'm, I can't be in the heads of everyone. Right. That would be really creepy. I would imagine it would be, you would discourage, uh, say, a, a manager of a team to like collect those fuck-ups of the week and then them have them present it to the team. For a long time, our team, we did a, every Monday, we would share like a lesson of the week, hopefully being like a painful thing you learned in the last week. And I think it was difficult for people sometimes to to latch onto that word lesson sometimes. And there might be a lot of things they learn. I think what we've always wanted to do is like, let's talk about the mistakes we're making more openly. And I think maybe we could have just better phrased that to be really specific, like to be okay. Lessons are okay, but like like a fuck up or a bigger mistake is also should be seen as an okay thing. You touched on like being able to earlier. You had said that psychological safety is when team members feel like they can say what they think. Do you have you seen scenarios where there's people that are saying things because they think that they should feel feel safe to say those things, but they're actually maybe a little hostile or they're not providing psychological safety to the the people on the other end of what they're communicating? Oh yes, definitely. What I see sometimes is that people abuse the term psychological safety to kind of say, oh, that means I can say anything I want because that is who I am. And psychological safety is in a context. And if you just say, oh, I think you're an ass because that's what comes up for <laughs> me right now, that is creating unsafety for the other person. And, and you need to also be aware of creating safety for other people. So like one of the questions that I ask people when I do my workshops is, what do you do that makes the environment unsafe for other people? Which usually startles people, but we all do that. Like one of the things uh, I'm a little bit known for is asking for deadlines. If you take an action, I would like a deadline. And a lot of people get nervous about this because what they hear is, how fast can you deliver this? When what I'm really saying is, I want to make sure that you have enough time to do this. And that if you don't, there's someone else that can take over. Plus, I want to make sure that we have a follow-up. But I know that's one of the things that can make things feel unsafe for me. I've also had a few young agile coaches who felt insecure speaking up in a room where I was because they felt like I know everything. And I think this is quite common. We are very good at thinking everyone else knows everything. You mentioned when we were planning this that uh, you watched one of my videos on imposter syndrome. And I think this is a huge, huge problem in our industry. Actually, it's a huge problem in the whole Western world. So the imposter syndrome is when you feel like you are a fake, despite evidence of the opposite. The original research was 
made on women because it was assumed that only women had this so-called syndrome. So it's not a diagnosis, it's a syndrome. Where you go into a situation, you go like, whoa, I should not be doing this because I'm not really fit for this. And so many people suffer from it. I recently saw an interview with Liam Neeson going, wait, I'm 60. One day somebody's going to find out that I'm not an action hero and not hire me for a new movie. Neil Gaiman, for instance, had it. Neil Armstrong had it. He's like, I just took a step. That's all I did. When actually without the astronauts, we would never have reached the moon. And I see this a lot in our industry where people go in and they see all these brilliant developers around us. Also because we created this stupid, oh, we need rock star developers. Which means that you look around, you see all these amazing developers or testers or agile coaches or whatever, and you go like, what do I even know? And actually, a true rock star could never do anything without a team. It's just a rock star that we see. That's very true. There's there's a whole team behind that, any mu- major musician or actor or what have you. I was listening to uh, a recent podcast episode from uh, Seth Godin recently when he talked about imposter syndrome, and, and his framing around it was that everybody kind of deals with it. It's like, it's kind of on a spectrum that most people deal with it at different times of, in their career. And there's always, he, he was kind of framing it around, like you need to embrace it as something being like, you are putting yourself out there to try something that you hope to be, or you're looking to become. And you have to kind of make those steps and you're, you are an imposter until you realize that you you're no longer an imposter, but we're, we're all an imposter at times. I thought it was an interesting take on like thinking about it versus it being something like just telling yourself that you're not, this is just like a temporary state, but rather it being a consistent thing. Yes, it can be a temporary state. And I mean, the research shows that up to 70% of the Western population had it at some point. And it's not a problem if you just have it like at one point. The problem is if you have it consistently and actually for it to be the imposter syndrome, it has to be despite evidence of the opposite. So you have evidence that you do well, but you still feel like an imposter. And I do think that fake it until you make it where you are actually an imposter, is beneficial to some extent. But imposter syndrome is more about, I've been speaking now for five years, I've been doing keynotes and stuff like that, and I can still sometimes have this. Actually, it's like a month, month and a half ago, I had this like, what am I even doing here? Why did anyone ask me to speak? I'm like, I'm not a proper speaker. I don't have anything to talk about. And even though I logically know that I have something to talk about, that people react to my talks, that I get invited, I still have this feeling. And I think that's what the real imposter syndrome is about. It's about having this feeling of being a fake, even though you can logically see that you're not. So in my talk, I also refer to a blog post by Mark Kilby, because he wrote about how you can use the imposter syndrome to your advantage, like knowing first that you are actually smart, because only smart people have the imposter syndrome. Because it kind of goes from, first you know nothing, then you know a little bit and you think you're an expert. And then the more you know, the more you know that you don't know. And then you go like, whoa, I'm never going to learn all these things. The problem is when it prevents you from speaking up about your ideas, for instance, or when you're concerned or when you don't, when you feel uncomfortable with it, so uncomfortable that you might go into anxiety or other problems. Do you find that developers or anyone that you're talking to about these subjects are they're trying to navigate, as you mentioned, like they tend to be smart, hopefully. And they, as a result, you learn that you don't know a lot. And do you think like there's early, people earlier in their career kind of deal with this? Or have you seen this kind of like across the spectrum at any point in someone's career? It's like, it doesn't matter if you're someone who just got out of school or 
finished a boot camp and is kind of like in their first internship job versus someone that's been in the industry for 20 plus years? I've seen it with people who've been in the industry for 50 years. People who will be like highly esteemed professors at a university saying, one day somebody's going to come up to me and say, John, I'm sorry, that's been a mistake. You should never have been a professor. <laughs> so I see it widely across. And I see that when I start talking about it, then people around me start nodding. And in the beginning, most people won't, well, I should say, actually most male developers won't talk about this because we have sadly trained our men to not talk about emotions, which I think is, is a big problem and one of the reasons we have so many suicides among men. So it's Men's Health Day today or men, International mm. Men's Day. I'm not sure what that means. But one problem we have is we haven't empowered our men to have emotions. So when they have these imposter syndromes, they don't know how to handle it always. And every single time I talk about it, whether it's in a group of 10 people or in front of a crowd or giving a video, someone will approach me later and going like, I thought I was the only one in the world. So I think it's essential that we speak about these things. And by speaking about them, we make them less taboo. And especially if you look around and you see 10 smart developers around you and you'll go, shit, I'm the only one doubting myself. Maybe I shouldn't be here. And that is really, really damaging. So I think that just addressing it and starting to slowly talk about these things, I think is essential. Do you have any advice for listeners right now and some like some small practices they can incorporate into their life of how they can start understanding that they're actually way more competent than, than they might sometimes think that they are? So one thing I do myself is I collect good feedback. So like if I get really good feedback from a talk or a client or whatever, or a thank you note, I put it in this box that I have that my grandfather bought for me in China. Nice. And I almost never look at it. But just, you know, every time I put something down there, I can see that the stack is growing. I think that is that I found really difficult, but that helped me was to write down three things I appreciate myself for every day. And then just look at all the evidence that you have and know that you're not alone and that it's quite normal to do these things and to feel this way. And it's okay to feel this way. Our feelings are always okay. The way we act can be not okay. Actually, I found that a lot of arrogant people have imposter syndrome. They're just afraid to show that they doubt themselves. Keep it consistent. You know, you mentioned like collecting that feedback, you know, that you're receiving on a regular basis. Um, I'm assuming most of that is good feedback. And then one thing I've noticed is that not everybody, I think, that I've seen developers, especially even within my own organization, that they're good about compiling those sorts of things. Like I've, I don't think I've to date in 15 years of having employees had an employee that showed up to like ask for a raise or wanted to talk about a promotion and said, here's like some examples of how, what I've been able to do, like some of their accomplishments. Uh, it's kind of like a, well, if you go back and look and see how much we've made the company or whatever, but like, I don't always see developers doing a good job of compiling some of those, like what have they helped contribute to the company or past jobs whether that's good feedback or you know projects that they've helped launch, just to have that kind of portfolio being built up to, a maybe counter some of that imposter syndrome, but b also making sure that they feel confident when they that they can go ask for say a raise or something if that's something that they're needing to do at some point. And I, I was just having a conversation with a friend about a week ago who was looking to figure out a way to ask for a raise, and they were trying to like look through all the stuff that they've been doing over the last few years for that company. And I was like, why haven't you been thinking about this all along? Like, why what? what I don't, I don't know where I'm going with this outside of like, I'm curious if something like that could also help other aspects to how one positions themselves in an organization. I think so. And 
when I started, so I worked for IBM. And one of the disadvantages of that was that my manager was not always in the same location as me. And I think that a lot of, well, mostly women I've encountered have this thing, if I just do my work well, someone will notice. But the problem is a lot of what we do is not noticeable. For instance, being an agile coach, if I'm a really good facilitator in a meeting, people will hardly notice I'm there. They will see me ask one or two questions and that's it. When really what I'm doing is I'm making sure that the right people speak, stuff like that, or that everyone speaks. So I think that writing it down that way, maybe just even one thing every day that you did well, and then taking that step back and looking at how did I contribute to this? For me, it was really difficult. And what I found helped me was to have someone to do this with. To have a person saying like, okay, I know in this situation it worked. And then have the other person ask questions like, so what did you do in this situation? And then just explain. And often when I explain, the other person will go like, oh, so what I hear you say is you called for a meeting with the right people. You made sure the right people were in the room. And I would go like, yeah, that's true. I did that. Because it's so much easier to see it from the outside. And I think we are not very good at taking positive feedback, actually. We're much better at saving all the bad things people say and remember that. So I think that if you can just start compiling these things and get a view of it and ask for other people's opinions as well. Let's imagine that someone in our audience, I hope there's some people listening to this, that are currently struggling with knowing how to get their team on board with a process change. Perhaps they felt like they've asked and or dropped a number of subtle hints over the last few years, but don't think others on the team are going to be receptive to their proposed change. What advice could you offer them on how to start navigating that today so they don't keep putting it off? I think, first of all, subtle hints never work because they are so based on who we are and what would work for one person is not doesn't work for another person. The first thing I would do is suggest it as an experiment. Just saying, I've been thinking about these things. Could we try this for a week? If it doesn't work, I'll buy you cake. Uh, if it works, we can move on with it. By the way, cake always works. It's a general thing I've found that work in all development and management teams so far. But just framing things as an experiment, not just because other people might be against it, but also because we are so complex. Code is complex. Everything is complex. And by having an experiment saying, I would like to try this. I think we would get this out of it. If we experiment a bit, we can always go back. That makes things a lot safer to suggest as well. Or saying, I've been thinking about this. Do you have any feedback? Do any of you have any ideas how we could implement this? Because by having people give that idea, they are more on board than if you just suggest something to them. I think that's a really important piece of recommendation there. And proposing a process change and it being kind of this open, okay, we're going to have to do this. And this is going to be the, like, it makes it seem like it's going to become this forever change when you could frame it within, let's time box that, let's experiment it, let's pilot this new program out, or let's be willing to be versatile and like try something out for a bit. If it doesn't work, we'll, you know, we'll come back to it. It'll hopefully be pretty obvious, but we're trying to address something today and it may not be the solution for next year, but let's experiment so we at least can find out if it's going to work or not, potentially work for us. Because sometimes I've seen teams spend way too much time trying to figure out the optimal, perfect solution to something. Versus, and, and, you, and you never know. That, so it becomes like a paralyzing decision because of like, well, until the team can all get it behind this, this is just going to be too much of a mess. Uh, I think that plays well with small changes in process. 
I've also used it as someone that runs a company and like, hey, we're going to hire someone in this sort of role for a while. I want to pilot this for the next six months to see if this role is going to help us. Because sometimes people don't understand, you know, are we just bringing in another person in the company? What's the point of this role? It's like, well, we're trying to experiment here. It may not work out. And so that's that's okay. It's just, but we got to be willing to at least try things. Otherwise, we're going to keep doing what we've been doing for such a long time. And I think also like, if you look at engineering, like rich building, for instance, there's a lot of good practices that you can do, but even if you have those good practices, you still need to do some experimentation before you build a new bridge over further waters than you've done before. And that is complicated stuff. But when you come into humans, it's more, you can't tell how people will react. You can't always tell how software will react unless it's very, very, very simple. And we don't do that anymore. I mean, you can make a small hello world, but you will most likely know how it would work. But then I have seen Hello Worlds that go very, very wrong because there is something else around it. Which also means that we need to find emerging practices. So we need to figure out what works best for us now. And then, like you said, if you hire someone for six months, that might work really well for you now. And then in two years, you might not need this role anymore. You may want to keep the same person if they work really well in the company, but you might not need that role because things change so fast nowadays. So experimenting, I think, is the only way that we can do all these things. Also because we learn all the time, hopefully. So a couple last questions for you as we wrap up. What non-software development-related book do you find yourself most often recommending to people in our industry? Brené Brown. I thought it was just me, but it isn't. So Brené Brown is a researcher in shame and vulnerability. And she started out... So this one is actually, was targeted at women because she looked into women's shame until she realized that men also has shame. It is just different because mm-hmm. of our culture. So I recommend that. Plus I recommend her TED Talk a million times uh, about vulnerability where vulnerability is actually about being brave so that we can face things. And I based, uh, actually I based a lot of my work on her as well. And I know that she trains a lot of leadership also in Silicon Valley, for instance. That's great. I'll definitely include links to the book and their TED Talk as well. I've seen the, the TED Talk in, in particular. And I think that was it, was, it was, it was really insightful there for sure. Where can listeners keep following up on your thoughts and you know ideas? I know you speak at a lot of different conferences, but how can people kind of follow along with you online? Yeah, so I'm very active on Twitter. I'm called Native Wyatt. And I'm working on nativewyatt.com. I think like a lot of people, I have this website that I'm supposed to update all the time. But like one thing I started doing is to have a public calendar. Well, semi-public. It doesn't say necessarily where I am, but it says like if I'm at a conference or if I'm which country I'm in. So it's beneficial for my clients, but it's also beneficial for people if they want to know where I am. But Twitter is one place I hang out a lot. Well, great. Well, it's been such a delight having you on Maintainable, Gita. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Hey,